Hello everyone, my name's Paul Bird. You're listening to another episode of the When in Spain podcast. In this episode, something a little bit different actually. It's uh, gonna be a best of episode. Now I've never done a best of episode before actually. And um, what I thought I'd do is put together a best of food and drink. So we're going to hear a few snippets of food and drink in Madrid, people doing interesting things with food right here. And what I've done is put together a few clips of past episodes to give a little flavor of Spain. And uh, especially at this uh, time of lockdown, when we are maybe trying to think about the future when we can eat and travel in our beloved Spain. So coming up, we're going to hear from Margit Sperling, who runs Walk and Eat Spain. She gives food tours around Madrid. We're going to be talking about that amazing Spanish delicacy, jamón. Then we're going to be looking back at Spanish wine with Luke Daracot and Roque Madrid. Do you remember those guys? Uh, the Spanish wine experts who've got their very own shop, cork-popping distance from Madrid's Plaza Mayor. From wine to beer, we're going to be talking craft beer scene in Spain with David and Patrick from La Osita Bar, right in the centre of Madrid on the famous Tapa Street, Cava Baja. They're also founders of the Oso Brew Company, brewing their own craft beer right here in the Spanish capital. And then from beer to cookies, cookies baked by closeted nuns, nuns in one of Madrid's most famous convents. El Convento de las Carboneras, right in the centre of the capital. Uh, you have to find a wooden door, which I'll be doing in the clip, and uh, following a secret passage to a wooden hatch where you can buy these beautiful, delicious cookies baked by the nuns themselves. So join me for that as well. And to round off the episode, I'm going to be talking to Sam and Veron from AlternativeTravelers.com about the vegan food scene in Spain. So let's get on with the episode. Here's the music. So food and drink in Spain. Also in this episode, a few comments and reviews that you guys, the listeners, have left me. Um, recently, I asked people to get in touch through the Facebook group and the When in Spain Instagram page to tell me why they listen to the When in Spain podcast. Now, I imagine at the moment, lots of people listen to podcasts to help transport themselves to places that they can't be at the moment due to the uh, lockdown and uh, quarantine situation with COVID-19. Um, so I put it out there to the When in Spain Facebook group and uh, Instagram followers of why they listen to When in Spain, where they listen to it, and that kind of thing. So I'll be dropping in a few of those comments that people were kind enough to get back to me with about why they listen to the When in Spain podcast as well. But anyway, let's kick off the episode. And where better to start than that Spanish delicacy, jamón, with Margit Sperling. The king of these products is without question jamón. And when we talk about jamón, uh, there's all different pieces to that puzzle, which we will get to. But when we're talking about the best of the best, we just have to start right off the bat with the greatest thing that you can get at one of these stands, which is jamón. Ibérico de bellota, uh, which means it is jamón. Jamón is the back dry cured leg of the pig. Ibérico refers to the Iberian breed of pigs. And bellota 
means that these guys, for the last couple months of their lives, they only eat acorns. So bayoto is our acorn. So they forage for acorns, and that's what they eat for the last few months of their, of their lives. Exactly. They're free-range animals. They're out in these beautiful landscapes, which are called deesas, which are just these beautiful open spaces. And so you have these gigantic pigs uh, just gorging themselves on acorns. Now, importantly, acorns are their favorite foods. Like Traditionally, this is what they've eaten, and this is what they want. And so they're out there. I kind of like to imagine myself, like if I was out in a field of pizza, what would happen to me? Um, and this is sort of the experience. They're in a field of pig pizza, which is acorns. Um, so the best way to get jamón ibérico de bellota, which is fun to say and fun to eat, which is my favorite category of food, uh, is to go to one of these amazing uh, butchers. So our jamonero here, José Ignacio, he has a beautiful leg of the jamón ibérico. And one of the most important things when you're going to get jamón ibérico is you want to look at the color of the foot. The foot is going to be black. It's oftentimes called pata negra, uh, which just means black foot. Uh, so we got to have our black foot. So we have our black foot. It's set up here to be cut. Pata negra is kind of indicates the quality. The black foot refers to this animal, and they have black feet. That's one of their characteristic markings. So, nos hace un poquito de jamón, porfa. So we're going to get a little ham. Now, this is quite an art, isn't it? I, I've heard of people go to sort of institutes that actually teach people how to carve the ham in a very fine, almost, it's so thin. I mean, it's like, it's like a millimeter, maybe two millimeters thick. Exactly. And this is the thing is that folks spend a very long time. Oh, my gosh. Muchas gracias. gracias. Um, spend a very long time learning to cut ham. Uh, Jose Ignacio grew up helping his father, and then he's been cutting ham for years. ¿Cuántos años llevas aquí en el mercado? No me acuerdo. Yo solo llevo siete, pero nací en el 71. Sí. Y ya empecé a venir. Perfecto. Después, 48. <laughs> so he says that he's had this stand himself uh, after his father retired for about seven years, but he's been helping out uh, since he was a kid. And so he basically grew up learning how to cut this stuff, and you can really see the pieces here um, are absolutely beautiful. Another thing that's really amazing about the jamón is that, again, everything about making ham is an art and a science. Um, and you have these guys who train for years to cut it and also to be able to recognize when it's ready. Piece of uh, paper here with a few small slices of the jamón mm -hmm. right there, looking <laughs> super know, tempting. How many years of curation has this pata? The pito was killed on the 18th of the 2015. We're asking about how long the ham cured for. This is extremely important. And now each ham has to have a special ticket. And so this one says that the animal was slaughtered um, in the 18th week of 2015. Wow, so it's super specific. So we're in the 28th week of 2019, so it's a little over four years. And this is a really amazing part about the whole process, that when we talk about the art and a science, there is the art of cutting, serving, and presenting, but the science is absolutely necessary. When we talk about ham, we're talking about pork salt and time, because it needs to cure, as you heard, for a minimum of three years to be considered jamón ibérico and to be sold with that special label. Um, but, you know, there's all of the different factors, how much salt how long it's, it's cured, uh, the humidity level, the air circulation, all of this is so you get these perfect licks because we're eating raw meat. I mean, let's, let's make no bones about this. This is eating very fancy raw meat. And so you have salt and then it hangs. Where do they normally hang them to cure? Okay, so now this is done, it's highly regulated by the European Union. They're done in factories with, again, everything regulated to the level of humidity, to the air circulation, to the temperature, because again, we're eating raw meat. Um, traditionally, this would be made, you know, you'd have a special part in your barn where there was lots of uh, cross ventilation, so you would hang the legs from the rafters. But 
Enough of the history. I really think we're going to have to try this. Let's dig in here. Let's dig in. Okay, let's see. Let's look at these pieces. When you get jamón, particularly a very good piece of jamón ibérico, you never want to be afraid of the fat. Yeah, because I think maybe certainly in the yeah. UK, people it's the sort of thing that people cut the fat off their meat exactly, or, or a bit exactly. squeamish about eating too much fat. So when you see this white marbling, people are like, ooh, no, just avoid eating that. Exactly. For all of us who grew up in lean protein, lean protein, lean protein societies, um, this can be quite a shock. But sometimes people get in said to me, you know, I went and I had ham and they totally took advantage of me because I'm a foreigner and they put a bunch of fat on there. And you're like, no, 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 no. If someone loves you in Spain, they give you the fatty bit. It can be the fatty bit of the ham, the fatty bit of the roasted lamb, whatever it is. Fat is truly flavor. I mean, I know we've heard that, but that is absolutely the truth. And when we're talking about the jamón ibérico, it is absolutely crucial. A good piece of jamón ibérico should be about the size of a credit card, and it should be ribboned with that beautiful marbling. There's got to be a good balance of the fat to the meat because that's where you get the magic. And since these animals eat acorns, um, the acorns just do this incredible number on the meat as it as it ages for, again, like three to four or five or six years uh-huh. even. And so you get all this wonderful properties where you look at the fat. I mean, yes, it is a warm summer day, but the fat melts at a much lower uh, temperature, so it's glistening. The feeling of eating jamón ibérico is that this magical earthy meat where you can taste essentially what the animals were eating just melts on your It tongue. melts in your mouth really does, doesn't it? And then the it? other thing that's really cool to look at it is you have the crystallization of the salt and again, the salt is what's used to preserve this and so since it sits in salt, you want to think it's about a day in salt per kilo of meat at the beginning so it uh-huh. winds up being about two weeks immersed in salt, then the excess salt is dusted off, then it's hung by its little foot to dry and then several years later, we get to eat the magic. Ta-da! And really and is magic. this beautiful crystal of the salt as the moisture evaporates and the salt concentrates almost like when you bite into a chunk of parmesan cheese and you get almost that like shattering effect that's the same kind of thing let's turn off the talking Grab i want to get this chunk. in my mouth you get a chunk? yeah i'm just gonna try and maybe it's so good oh wow it's really good mm. every time you eat jamón ibérico you think to yourself like this is why we pay for quality you know and when we're talking about jamón ibérico this is not deli ham this is a beautiful piece of meat that has been aged with care and love for years. And so this is... This is a, this I mean, this is, is a real delicacy. This is a delicacy. delicacy. And we talk about the price of a delicacy. We're talking between about 80 to 150 or even more euros a kilo. Mm-hmm. And because this is stuff that, you know, the animal lives for a very long time because they're these traditionally raised pigs that aren't kind of like hormone-injected farm animals that are just grow, 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 grow. So the animal lives for a long time. So it has to be fed. And then the acorns, and then the aging process, and it has to be monitored, and then it has to be stored. And then our friend here, Jose Ignacio, hand cuts the leg using this like big old knife that were his father's <laughs> knives. And so everything about it, from the slaughtering of the animal to the preserving to the serving is this whole process and when you taste it there's just no comparison between like it's got the you can taste yeah. almost the acorns it's got a sort of sweetness to it it's got the earthiness to it and like you said it just dissolves in your mouth it's not chewy uh-uh. it's not grisly it's not it's just absolutely beautiful tender melt in your mouth totally and that's the thing is you get that balance between the meat and the fat and that's what gives it that kind of magic mouth feel um, and it's really it's just so so good
Yes, and that jamón ibérico was absolutely delicious. And one thing that wasn't mentioned in that clip is where you should go and buy jamón to try. And, uh, well, Margaret and myself both agreed that the best place to go and buy jamón uh, when you're visiting Spain is to go to one of the municipal indoor markets, find a jamón stall and order yourself about, I don't know, 250 grams of jamón. They will cut it, slice it up for you, present it to you and you can eat it there. That is our advice for finding good quality jamón. Incidentally, when things do eventually get back to normality and people can travel uh, again, um, do go and book a tour with Margaret Sperling. She does a fantastic food tour around Madrid. And why not let her know that you found out about her Walk and Eat Spain tours by listening to the When in Spain podcast. And if you would like to find out more about uh, Margaret's tours, then head across to her website, which is Walk and Eat spain.com Incidentally, I must say that Margaret at the moment is also making some fantastic foodie videos on her Instagram uh, account as well. So go and find Walk and Eat Spain on Instagram and she's putting together recipes, she's doing live videos, cooking up some amazingly delicious typical Spanish recipes. So from jamón to vino, coming up, we've got an amusing chat with Luke Darracott and Roque Madrid, who instantly also have a podcast called The Spanish Wine Experience. So if you're looking for a super detailed podcast about Spanish wine, go and check out their podcast, Spanish Wine Experience. They have their own specialist Spanish wine shop in the centre of Madrid called Madrid and Darracott. And at the moment, if you check out the website, well, this only applies if you're living in Madrid, I guess, but important to say that obviously it's a difficult time for small businesses at the moment, but that Luke and Roque are doing wine delivery uh, within Madrid, delivering their boxes of the fantastic wines that they sell in their shops. And they are also doing virtual wine tastings as well uh, via the uh, Madrid and Daracot uh, website, I believe, and through Instagram. Go and find Madrid and Daracot on social media. They are putting together fantastic, fun virtual wine tastings. Luke's just opened a bottle as we're talking. Go on then. Why not? Why not? not? It's 11am on a Friday morning. Um, But is it right that Spain is... Uh, what, the number three or in the top three wine producers in the world? Normally it's in position three, sometimes uh, can change. Uh, Three, four years ago we were the first because French, we love French people, Uh, they had a terrible weather year and they lost their position, which I think is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So top three, but isn't Spain the largest exporter of wine globally? By far in the world. Um, No, sorry, in in Europe. Um, I think one of the largest in the world. Number three producer, largest amount of land dedicated to vineyards of any country in the world. La Mancha is the largest wine region. Yeah, I remember in one of your podcasts, and it was a statistic that really uh, surprised me, actually. Like, La Mancha is bigger than, like, the whole of, like, the Napa Valley or something. It's because it's just, it's wall-to-wall vineyards. Like, when you you see these wine maps, they can be a bit disingenuous. For example, you see the size of... The big orange Ribera de Guadiana in Extremadura. Yeah. It looks massive, right? That's a huge area. It's almost as big as La Mancha. Absolutely. Having said that, the wineries are very spread out. So they might actually, you might, it's more the, the, the area where the DO is covered, the denominación de origen is covered. Yeah. Not necessarily, it means it's completely full. Yeah. La Mancha is absurd. It's just olive trees and vineyards for as far as you can see. 
Yeah. Um, most of the wine is pretty bad. <laughs> They're changing their brand. That was, um, like Rocco said, the bulk wine. They used to call it La Bodega de Europa, the winery of Europe, because it produced so much. So La Mancha, the biggest DO in, in Europe or in the world? Oh, the world. The biggest DO in the world, really? Wineries on the planet is La Mancha. And, and, and how many hectares or whatever? I believe it's a, an, an F-ton. If you would say in 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 cool kids speak, yeah. I, I actually I, I think I have a note down here. I think I was looking at it, La Mancha. Hang on a second, I it's might not have it. But not the the most productive. The most productive should be Rioja, right? Yeah, I think it's the most productive because there's about 800. And, but almost half half the wine of Spain comes from Rioja, so it's. I think Rioja is the kind of wine that most people still Rioja know was, outside of Spain. Rioja, maybe one or two of the best uh, wines in the world come from Rioja. But uh, Rioja is a dreamland for wine. It's protected by mountains from the north and from the south. And, you know, those mountains, the Pyrenees and the mountains from Cantabria, mm-hmm. and protect the, from the cold weather that comes from Brexit land. And, um, the cold <laughs> winds of Brexit. Yeah. About 500,000 hectares in La Mancha. Almost 50% of all the planted vines are in La Mancha. Ooh. That's so, amazing, almost 50% just in La, La Mancha de Roja, Roja, I wanted to say, is a, is a super perfect wine. And sometimes perfection is boring. How many DOs are there? About 71. There's lots of... 71 DOs in... Befuddled, befuddled sort of designations, but I think 71 is the latest count. <clears throat> because last year... They introduced a couple of new ones. In Asturias, Cangas became a DO. But then someone else said it's not. It's a, and I'm like, well, someone's got to be right here. It's really confusing. I think, but I think they got upgraded. And then, One of the Canary Islands, right? Yeah. The East Canarias. Or Canary Islands Canary in, in English. Yeah. So it was something like that. Oh, really? yeah. kind of cover all the whole islands in one go, which is a bit, bit stupid. For the listeners who are not sure, DO is denomination... <laughs> Dominatrix orgy. <laughs> Denomination de origen. It's like, it's like the French have the appellation contrôlée. It just means like a wine area which has regulations of what you can grow, alcohol levels, this kind of yields per X or Y hectares. It just it basically means if I'm in Britain or if I'm in Murcia or if I'm in Timbuktu, the wine has its own kind of geographic style, if that makes sense. So the idea of these regions was... If you can plant anything anywhere, what is the point of a wine region in the first place? So California used to be like, you could do what you want. He's like, I want to do a blend of Pinot Grigio and Cabernet ah, Sauvignon. It's, it's you, the you, best you. way to preserve, to protect the style and the profile of the wine of each region. Otherwise, if you follow the needs of the wheels of the market, uh, all, all winemakers would be making the same wine. So it's a way to protect the personality of each yeah. area. Okay, so Luke's opened a bottle um, and poured us each uh, yeah. a, a little slug of wine here. Toledo wine from Mentrida, which is a small region. Yeah. The wine is called Tavera. It's next to Madrid, right? Next to Madrid. And this Madrid is, is divided in three, now, now four sub-zones. Sub, sub yeah. And now Ar- Arganda, Naval Carnero, San Martin, and now the new Jarama. I didn't know how. It's, Molar? It's called or? Molar. Molar. Yeah. This one, this one so this by the way, is Tempranillo, Syrah, and Garnacha from 2013. Garnacha is the king of the Madrid wine. Mm. And very popular as well in Mentria. I read a nice thing the other day, which is if Tempranillo is the señor or the, the lord of Spanish grapes, Garnacha is the lady. Because it's quite a. Do you want to hear my, my. I wrote a wine joke. Do you want to hear this? Yes. <laughs> All right. Ready yourselves for a groan. Garnacha is, is quite a thin skinned variety. So don't insult it. Come on! Oh, okay. 
Okay, cheers. Cheers. Uh, cheers. Salud. Salud. I think I need a bit more wine. That's why I can fully, fully appreciate that. <laughs> Hello, that's too early for that joke. Not for wine, it's too early for that joke. Crashing on, someone coming to Spain for the first time, could we give some recommendations? Drink it. <laughs> Drink it. I think, you know, you go into your average old man bar, the Tasca, mm. the default wine in Madrid, for example, is going to be a Verdejo or a, a Roble or something. Let but me give you an advice. Um, probably if you go to a bar, uh, and you ask for, if you ask for a, for a red wine, uh, 99% chances they will offer you a Rioja wine. Um, Okay, if the waiter uh, offers you a Rioja wine, <laughs> ask him, what else can you offer me? Okay? Don't settle for Rioja. Yeah, I would agree with that, because I think uh, Rioja, I mean, Rioja is fine, but we always, so on our tastings, we never put Rioja, because we say, you don't need our help in finding Rioja. Um, and Roque is right, because they might have something else. I think also the bars are trained to be like, we have to have Rioja, mm -hmm. as if it's like, we can't not have Rioja. It's like, no, you can. People will, if people want a red wine, they'll order a red wine, but they think they have to have Rioja because it's so famous. So, yeah, asking people, like, ¿hay otra cosa? Is there another thing? Um, most bars now have, like, Rioja or Ribera. They have, like, a couple, maybe. And they're usually a better bet because there's far fewer wineries and the quality, generic quality, I think, is higher. Rioja Ribera is, uh, uh, is, is like if you say New York, San Francisco, something yeah. like that. I see. Uh, two, two fairly modern liberal cities were completely Madrid, different. Barcelona is like... Ah. <laughs> like a West Side Story, like they got the da -da 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 -da. Hey, we're the Rioja boys. You Ribera's, what are you doing in our patch? Da -da 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 -da. Anyway, uh, what about whites? White wines? Oh, probably Madrid. Twenty nineteen, Paul. Probably Madrid. It will happen the same uh, with Reda. Yeah. They will probably give you Reda wine, uh, and it's the moment to ask. What else do you yeah. have? Probably the second option would be uh, Albariño from Rias Baixas. But it's, uh, I think it's a better option. I mean, because the weather in the bars in Madrid oh, tends to be very bad. Yeah. May I tell a personal anecdote Absolutely. about Albariño? Because this is the grape which actually got me into wine in the first place. Okay. Um, and it was, before I came to Spain, wine, you know, as an Englishman, wine was that stuff you have at dinner maybe, and it was that stuff which gets you drunk faster than beer at university. I didn't really... I was a, I like my cider and beer. I was I went to Bath. I like sort of like now encroaching on Don Simon territory. Or... Not quite. I had some. I had some. I would pay three euros, not one. Um, but I didn't care about wine. I just drank it. I was like, this is nice. But I liked. My family always drank big reds. My dad liked a big red, so I didn't just drank big reds. So I liked. You know, give me a bottle of Rioja, fine. Give me a bottle of Ribera del Duero. And it was after the first year. I went to do a run in Guadalajara. Uh -huh. Uh, I say a run, a 5K charity event run, so just so I could get a free T-shirt, basically, and pretend I was fit. The day before, we went out with the with our friend who lived, no, it's from Guadalajara, and she took us, I say us, me, um, my friend hadn't arrived yet, took us to a restaurant for Arroz con Bogavante, which is like this nice lobster rice, almost like a wet paella stew, very, very nice. And I was like, well, that sounds good, cultural. And she was like, should we get a white wine? And my inner head was like, oh, I drink, I wasn't really a white wine guy. I drank reds. And I was like, yeah, of course, why not? You know, you're in charge. And it was a bottle of Martin Kodash, which is now, sadly, of Albarino's, a bit more in, of the industrial big-scale wineries there. But at the time, it was 10 years ago, it was a bit of a smaller production. And it was a bottle of Martin Kodash, Albarino. And I'd never had really much, I'd never had Albarino before. I think if I ever had it, it was just like you said, Rueda in a bar. And it was a combination of this beautiful, crisp, aromatic Galician white wine and the... You know when, like, in these films, where the light kind of 
<laughs> comes through the clouds and shines. Yeah. I was like kind of a, I understand now. And it was that moment. So Alberino still is my favourite. And we have a very strong hand-picked selection of Alberinos here. A late harvest Alberino. Instead of September, the grapes are left there until like the end of October. Super aromatic, amazing. What is the kind of characteristic of Alberino? It's quite sort of minerally, isn't it? Bit of minerally, very fruit forward, lots of sort of apple y, melony, not less less citrusy than other ones, and quite round, but very crisp acidity. Even the French, and I say this doffing my cap to them, which is <coughs> I'm gonna give them a compliment, which is very hard for an Englishman to do. Even the French have said that it's the best white wine not all the French, <laughs> but the industry has said like, yeah, that's probably the best pairing wine for, for seafood in the world. And that is, you know, surprise, surprise, Galicia. You know, what, what grows together goes together. Yeah, always, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone who's coming to Spain and is considering choosing maybe a, a region to go visiting vineyards or wine producers, is there anywhere that you'd particularly suggest? Rioja, Rioja is the obvious one. It's the easy one. And it is amazing. You have lots of wineries there, full stop. You also have lots of wineries which have tasting rooms, which sounds obvious. If you're American listening... What America does very well is sell. But one of the problems is in Spain, we don't have the setup, the money, the finance. Rioja does. So you can actually go to a Rioja winery. So Rioja is like the most well set up. So you can go to some of the bigger wineries. If you go to Logroño or nearby to the town of Aro, you will find, you know, um, like Cune. Cune is a very famous one, or Muga. These ones, you can find these in America and Britain. They will actually have a tasting room where you can go in, you can drive up, you can try the wines, um, you can buy if you want. Most of them, in most of Spain, it's like a, a one-man job, I always call them, very small, family-run thing, and you have to call ahead. You, it's more like, let's do the visit, and at the end we'll try some wines. So you can, you can visit anywhere, but you have to plan more. Best if you're just touring Rioja by far. Ribera del Duero is pretty good as well. Um, Galicia has got a very good setup. Rias Baixas, as long as you call ahead, you know. But, well, I think one of the best options should join one of our excursions, one day excursions to the, <laughs> to, the, to the Madrid wineries. If you want to mm, see a winery here and also have an, one of the most amazing food ever yeah. uh, in Madrid, in Chinchon, actually. We, <laughs> we visit, uh, we have, uh, you know, a few... Uh, wineries there, friends of us, and and we really have an excellent time there. For anyone rocking up in Madrid or in Spain in in general, mm. never been here before, um, any do's and don'ts? Uh, would you just advise someone just to wander into any bar and ask the advice of the waiters, just to walk in and ask the advice of a waiter in your like average bar, or should they? Yeah, the sad thing is, the average bar won't have a selection of wines probably. I think, I mean, even though we hate on Barcelona a lot because the, the locals aren't as friendly, we think, and there's lots of tourism, which is both, I think, true. And I say that not with any kind of like, oh, because you live in Madrid. I just think it's been ruined by tourism a little bit. Yeah. Having said that, there are lots more wine-centric bars in Barcelona. I mean, they're surrounded by 11 DOs, great region. Please drink Catalan wine. They're fantastic. Um, but Madrid, we, most bars don't. So I think it pays before you come do a little bit of, not research, but just have a little Google, like, wine bars in Madrid. Because the sad fact is, if you go into a normal bar, unlike the wine region places, like Rioja, you go in, every crappy bar's got about 50 different Riojas. 
if you go into an average wine bar and you go, oh, what wines do you have? People are like, Rioja or Ribera. Oh, marvellous. That's it. So I think actually in Madrid, it's not necessarily the best idea just to walk into a random bar. Yeah. The more modern bars have more of a selection as well. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Subscribe. Everything you said. Like you should subscribe to the When in Spain podcast. <laughs> oh, pues muchas gracias, Luke. So here's a few comments from uh, the Facebook and Instagram from you guys, the listeners, who, uh, when I asked, uh, you know, why do you listen to this podcast? And, you know, what does it do for you? Does it help transport you to Spain? Which is really my goal at the moment. Uh, You guys, the listeners, may have noticed that I haven't actually, like many other content creators in Spain at the moment, I haven't actually put together a special episode about the coronavirus situation here in Spain, purely really because I don't think I've got anything more to add and I don't really want to add to the noise Um, you know the situation here is very very similar to many other parts of the world but what I really am keen to do at the moment with the podcast is you know, to help transport you to Spain, to help you uh, forget about the situation as much as possible and help bring you here to Spain virtually. I know many listeners have been in touch to say that they had uh, trips and holidays planned uh, in Spain uh, about now. And of of course, unfortunately, had to cancel their plans and uh, uh, rescheduling their trips for, uh, well, later in the year or indeed next year. So for those guys as well, especially, I really like to try and uh, make Make up for the fact that you've sadly had to cancel your plans and uh, in some way transport you to this magical country. So let's look at some of your answers. Nancy Cushing Sparacho says, I listen because I love Spain. I can't explain why exactly I just do. I usually listen while I'm working, since I'm working from home these days, or before falling asleep to help me dream about Spain. I love the episode about your flat tyre. I just think it's a good memory that you will have forever. And no matter where I am, my heart will always be in Spain. Thank you. Yes, the episode when me and Karina uh, drove up into Asturias and uh, got a, a serious puncture, stranded in a tiny village in the middle of the night. We had to go into someone's house, which turned out to be the local bar. Um, for a population, a village with a population of about eight people. It was a super surreal experience. And, uh, well, I made an episode about it. So go and check back uh, in the past episodes uh, for the episode about Asturias and a flat tyre. Quite an amusing uh, story, really. Sinead O'Connell says, I listen when I run. It makes me escape the pain and dream of being in Spain. Love the Malaga episode. A dream of spending half my year there. Uh, Maria Pasquel Cartier says, I listen on the train to work. Nothing makes you forget the agony of mass transit, but learning about Spain helps. Of course, now I have the luxury of listening while I'm cooking. Yes, uh, I guess many people listen to podcasts when they're commuting. I certainly used to before I moved to Spain, listen to things about Spain to help transport me here on miserable commutes in the centre of London. So Maria, I can totally associate with you. Candice Aguilar says, just started listening, have been meaning to for a while. I listen while I'm jump roping on our rooftop during lockdown. I look forward to it. Excited for your episode about Valencia. Well, the episode about Valencia was the last episode. So if you haven't listened to it yet and you want to know all about Valencia, uh, go and check it out. It's a really nice virtual walking tour of the city. 
City uh, with photographer Paul Knowles. David Denny says, I listen when out walking. It reminds me of all the positive and quirky things about Spain that I love so much. And David says, I particularly enjoyed the episode about Spanish TV programmes. Yep, go and check it out. Lots of clips. It was a rundown of my favourite and not so favourite uh, Spanish TV programmes and series. Nancy Baker says, I listen when walking or on the streetcar. Brackets in the days when I could actually take the streetcar. Our trip to Spain in May can't happen, but we're still planning to go as soon as we can. And Nancy adds, I've loved the on-the-spot episodes like the walking tour of interesting streets in Madrid and, of course, the eating episodes. Well, great. This episode's for you then, Nancy. Uh, Yeah, well, as soon as I'm allowed to go out, I will be bringing you lots more sounds from Madrid and Spain. Lots more on-the-spot episodes. Ted Reyes says... I listen when driving, walking on the beach or rainy weekends, listening more during this pandemic. Really enjoy the varied information about different places. One episode that I enjoyed was the Madrid Tapas Tour. I may not have considered neighbourhoods mentioned and now they are on my list for my next trip to Madrid. Well, that's what we aim to do is give you guys inspiration, little insights in places uh, to explore when you come to Spain that you may otherwise overlook. Oswald Perez, who's a patron, a long-term listener. Hi, Oswald. He says, I listen to the podcast as it's the closest I'll get to Spain without getting on a plane. I'm listening to the podcast in New York City and usually do towards the end of the day. I love the episode of Christmas in Spain as it showed that there's a lot more to the holidays in the country besides El Sorteo de la Navidad. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really very true. Uh, Alexandra Chapel or Alex, who's also a patron and was recently in Madrid. Unfortunately, we didn't coincide. But uh, hello to you, Alex. Uh, she says, I started listening because we had a trip planned and I was looking for insider on the ground, non-touristy knowledge. I hit pay dirt I don't know what that means (laughs) but anyway your episodes really bring Spain and Madrid in particular to life and made our trip more memorable we felt at home as if we actually lived there full time during our trip we definitely look forward to returning there's always something in your podcasts leaving me to want to see more of what Spain has to offer So from wine to beer, I had the great pleasure of chatting to David and Patrick from La Osita Bar. They are craft beer brewers. They also are founders of the Osso Brew Company, brewing their own craft beer. They recently got in touch with me to say that at the moment, again, this applies to any listeners who are living in Madrid, that they've just launched a new web shop to deliver their craft beers. And uh, if you'd like to order their beer, head across to Osso brewco.com forward slash craft contract COVID. So they are donating a proportion of the money they earn from selling their beers to a charity which is Craft Beer Against the COVID-19 Virus. Fantastic cause. Go and check them out. And here we are last summer in the bar talking about the craft beer scene in Spain and how they make their own beer. history of beer in Spain it goes back beyond British beer uh, to 5000 BC kicked out by the Romans brought their wine culture in so you know there's a long history here now there's a renaissance of uh, you know, more artisanal brewing that's been going on probably for the last 10 years but really started motoring in the last four three four five years 
starting off in Barcelona but now really ratcheting up in, in Madrid some really great breweries here some really exciting stuff going on and it's only going to go well that's what we think I mean uh, <laughs> the Spanish you know obviously like beer as, as Patrick was saying you know it's something they drink every day and you know so much good response to um, the beers that we brew but also to all the other beers that we have on in the bar from whole range whole gamut of different types of people so it's not just young hipster types who some people might associate with craft uh, ale it's you know couples of in their 60s 70s you know all kinds of people uh, and that's the most encouraging aspect i think about beer in Madrid, Arsenal beer in Madrid. And the palate in Spain, I think, is ripe for bitterness, for more hoppiness, for more punch being added into what is part of daily life for a lot of Spanish people. So it's very exciting. Talking about the beers that you brew, there's two that you actually are your in-house beers. I'm drinking at the moment, which I have to be honest, I've tried a few times before. Uh, (laughs) This one is called Citrus Cream Ale. And I think you said to me before, David, that Reminds me a little bit of a Clara, very commonly drunk in Spain, which is a beer mixed with lemonade, a bit like a shandy, I suppose. But, you know, it's obviously not a shandy, but it's light, refreshing, with citrus elements, citrus notes. Um, Yes, I think that's uh, kind of one of the other reasons we uh, fitted in moving back here to set this up, because the styles that we've always brewed have been sort of sessionable styles, you know. So they're not um, super high on alcohol. They're the kind of things that you, you would drink by the pint, which I guess is you know what we've grown up with um, drinking in the UK. And so, yeah, so the two styles that we've sort of started with here is uh, the citrus cream ale, which, uh, which you're drinking. The cream ale is kind of, it's an American style, really, of a bit of a sort of a hybrid between the main influences in American brewing, which would be... British ales and German lagers and those are the oh. kind of people who moved over there initially it's what the uh, Americans would call a lawnmower beer because you sort of on your on your sort of sit on your sit on your lawnmower go around have a couple of beers while you're doing it um, you know kind of easy drinking stuff and and the, the cream um, part of it really just comes from it's the fact that it's very smooth and the body and the texture of it there's no, no lactose or any cream in it you know in there and then yeah we decided to put some orange and lemon peel in ours because it, like you said it's kind of aimed at the people who might want a clara or, or a shandy want that sort of refreshing easy drinking beer but it is a beer it's brewed like a beer the whole process is it kind of fits in with that craft beer or you know artisan um, philosophy of uh, sort of doing it the proper way you know you're not just bottling it and adding some lemonade in there in the bottle like a rat you know kind of thing so that's um the one you've got there and then the table beer again it, it's kind of uh, the style of the table beer really is it's like the van de table vino de mesa kind of idea that it's it's a beer that isn't uh, uh, overly complex you don't have to sort of think about it too much we just want to make a nice beer that you have by the pint it, I guess it's like a, a sort of light hoppy gold nail kind of would be the closest style it is but it's really not constrained by style what we're trying to do is just every batch we brew we're just trying to get that drinkability uh, it wanted to be interesting but nothing that sort of packs too much of a punch in, in, in any way it's just sort of a an alternative to someone who wants to just drink a a lager or a blonde or, or whatever and again lower alcohol how do you kind of develop a beer how do you kind of come up with the idea behind it and what is the kind of creative process of um, i imagine trial and error uh, in the brewing process to get the product that you sell today in the yeah. bar i guess like with anything stage one is to always be trying new beers and trying different things and everything we order in 
with its bottles, cans, kegs. We'll be having a taste. We'll be, we'll discuss it. What do we th- what do we think about that? What do we like about that? What do we you know? We go to the other bars around here. We go to festivals. We try things all the time. So that's that's always the first stage. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is you maybe just think what I would like. You know, kind of there's maybe less process on that side. You just kind of think what would we like? You know, what, 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 what would we what would we want to be drinking right now? You know, past experience, we kind of know. Okay, here's a pretty good basic, you know, base recipe for something like an IPA or for an ale or for whatever. And then you kind of go, well, this is kind of the base. So then, how would we? What do we want? You know, we, we use brewing software as well. So we're saying, okay, we maybe want a little bit more colour. So let's add in a bit on this more style of malt, or we want a bit more body. So let's change the temperature we we mash at, which is the kind of uh, first stage of the brewing where you add the grain and, and hot water. We'll increase the temperature of that, so we've got less fermentable sugar, so more of that character stays in the beer, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. then it's a sort of, you know, like with these two, then it's a small batch. So, you know, we brew these at 70 litres, so it's not that small, it's quite a lot to drink. <laughs> it's quite a lot for you and your mates, but it's a relatively small batch, you know, it's not a commercial batch. And then, yeah, it's a, yeah, and then there's always trial and error. I think, you know, you obviously hope that the more you do it, less trial and definitely less error. Before you it's just it. a case of tweaking and perfecting and then building on what you've... You hope to, you know, get it more right first time, the, the more you do it, obviously. But then sometimes we'll be going for, you know, we obviously have a, quite a few different beers that we're looking to to release this year yeah i guess that's it we start from like a base style you know this is a good bitter this is a good ipa this is a good porter and then we kind of just see how do we want to put our touch on it tell me how does the global beer scene compare for example between spain the usa and the uk in terms of the craft beer scene specifically and or micro brewing in terms of the craft brewing you know the us led the way for sure um you know a lot of people sort of trying to brew old English styles that they couldn't really find. Um, sort of Fuller's ESB was a real sort of early one that people wanted to, yeah, start brewing at home and then people, uh, you know, it's, it's still not cheap, but <laughs> as it became more affordable to set up, um, you know, sort of smaller kits and so on. So, you know, the US, we're talking, I suppose, close to 30 years ago now. So whilst craft beer, to a lot of people, feels like quite a new thing. It's, it's really there. Um, and a lot of those have gone on to become you know very big very successful um breweries and yeah in the uk we're probably you've got Brewdog, which i think was 2007 and then yeah this sort of 2011 12 you know a lot more started to pop up the us is a huge market in the uk it's 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 still growing um and there are 1500 or 2000 breweries now in the uk um significantly fewer here but it's definitely changing what a lot of people do here is sort of nomad brewing as they call it so they'll go to other people's breweries and, and brew and that's a, a good way of sort of sharing resources that allows more people to pop up and, and do what they want to do and, and sort of get it out there here we still serve a lot of imported bits so we know we less stuff from the US which is a bit um, more of a headache to get over but we sell a lot of UK Scandinavian beers um, French beers and so on so in terms of, of, of a comparison I think with Spain, we're going to see what normally happens is it kind of follows a bit of the, the trajectory of the US market. But then each market has their kind of, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies and sort of how it will develop. It's, yeah, with Spain, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're seeing where that's going to go at the moment. I think uh, we really like the brew pub model where you um, you brew and sell on site. Um, 
it's great for freshness. It's great for uh, you know getting that product straight to straight to your customer and getting that feedback and creating that nice atmosphere. Is it, is it fair to say that Madrid is a kind of hub for microbrewing in Spain and and for the kind of craft beer scene more than Barcelona? Well, I don't know Barcelona, Madrid. I mean, we we would probably have to say Barcelona is still the hub um, and definitely started earlier there. You've got uh, some considerably bigger breweries in, around the Barcelona area than you do here at the moment. It, but the last year or two in Madrid it's really started to, to take off and uh, I, I really do think that you know with Madrid having that um, you know that really strong demand for local product I think uh, as those options spring up I think it, it definitely has the uh, opportunity to overtake it Barcelona probably a more international city you've got ready-made British American Australian everywhere you know customers who are already kind of more used to it but yeah Madrid I think it's, it's just waiting for those options to to really get out to people but yeah the last two years it's 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 grown a lot so it's definitely becoming a a hub for for spain but also for europe you know it's it's been in a couple of articles recently about you know the best beer cities in europe so yeah it's it's definitely getting there i mean it's a great city to go out and eat and drink you know i think i mean it's famous for that really isn't it it's famous for la marcha it's famous for going out and eating and drinking probably more than us it's not a capital city of monuments like paris or rome you know it is a city for La Morida, the enjoying the enjoying food and drink, really, isn't it? Yeah. Beer can add something to that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of other innovation going on in, in Spanish um, cuisine and, and, and food and drink in general. There's a lot more small wine producers emerging. There's a lot more international food of developing in, in Madrid, which I think kind of touched on earlier. The yeah. tastes are changing a little bit. People yeah. are becoming a bit more adventurous with yeah. spicier food, perhaps, and uh, <laughs> slightly more exotic flavours. Yeah, sometimes I feel that sometimes uh, there's, there's it's a bit of reluctance. It takes I think it takes some time. Maybe you know I think in the UK maybe our food heritage, heritage before wasn't so strong, and we were much more just open-minded to uh, international cuisine. Uh, very readily, very quickly. Whereas I think Spain's sort of very hold dear, very much their their traditions of their food and and their drink, and things have to be in a very particular way. Yeah, and we do get a bit of that when people come in and say, "You must put on this." You, in Spain, in bar, you have to do this. Which obviously, you know, we, we give free tapa because we think that's a great idea. We use great Spanish products for that. We all our wine is Spanish because you know we focus on that. But at the same time, I think there's room for. Uh, adding something you, you know, yourself and adding a, you know, your own touches, uh, and I think I think it's something that's going to really start to motor over the next few years. Well, what I wouldn't give to be perched at their bar right now, sipping one of their citrus cream ales. Beer to cookies. Cookies baked by nuns. Uh, you have to find a wooden door following a secret passage. So I have located the door. A couple of other people waiting outside as well. And uh, on the buzzer, you've got three buzzers. Uh, one says monjas, which is nuns. One says uh, sacerdotes, which is for confessions. One has a picture of a light bulb. And it says venta de dulces y visitas. And it's open until one o'clock. So I'm going to ring the bell. Nothing happening yet. Hola, para comprar dulces. I've just walked into a very dark passageway inside the passageway a little sign saying torno which means lazy susan so it's going, it's going to be one of those wooden revolving doors in the wall which will which means you won't see the nuns so the nuns here in this convent have made a vow not to have any contact with the outside world not to make any contact 
human contact with people. So when I buy the cookies, uh, no, no contact at all. So I imagine what's going to happen at the Torno, which is the wooden kind of revolving Lady Susan. At the Torno, I will, I will place my order. The biscuits will be placed on the revolving tray. And I will then put my money on the tray and the money will swing around and disappear and the payment will be made. A few people in here actually, I'm quite surprised. But I'm just in a really beautiful little courtyard uh, with a little pot plants and a couple of small palm trees and terracotta pots. There's also the uh, emblem of Madrid. It's the bear, the bear eating the strawberry tree. And there's a, a, a tiled picture of Christ uh, carrying a cross in blue and yellow tiles on the wall. So let's go and buy some sweet goodies. So just for another passageway into another sunny courtyard which is painted bright uh, yellow, lemon yellow, more palm trees. There are a group of uh, people standing in the courtyard who've uh, just made their purchase. They've got a big white bag with a couple of boxes inside of cookies and there's another brown wooden doorway where the lazy susan or the serving hatch is hola buenos días me pone medio kilo de naranjines por favor es que nada más que tenemos pasta de té y mantecados de jerez ah vale entonces eh, mantecados de jerez por favor Gracias. So they just spun the table around. My biscuits miraculously appeared. Gracias. Adiós. The lazy Susan spins around. My cookies uh, miraculously appear. Well, not really. Miraculously. Uh, one of the nuns, as you've just heard, is behind there. And uh, I placed my 10 euros on the revolving tray, tray spins round, and my change appears. And it's as simple as that. Okay, cookies in hand. It's an interesting experience. It's quite surreal. You go into this dark passageway through two little courtyards. Uh, there's just like a wooden hatch. No one there. There's a little menu on the wall. Well, I wanted orange cookies called naranjines. But unfortunately, they'd run out of nearly all of the cookies on the uh, menu. And the only ones they had left was uh, mantecada de Jerez, which is the ones I bought, which is uh, like sherry shortbread. And the other option left on the menu was pastas de té, which are like, uh, I don't know, tea-scented or tea-flavoured pastries. So I've gone for the... Uh, for the Manticados de Jerez, it says Ingredientes, harina, azúcar, Jerez seco, esencia de limón, manteca e impulsor. So the ingredients of these, on the box it says is flour, sugar, Jerez seco, which is like the dry sherry wine. So they do include some alcohol, lemon essence and manteca, which is, well, a step up from butter, mantequilla. Manteca is actually animal fat, so it's uh, lard.
So to round off then, let's talk about the vegan food scene in Spain. Now this is really interesting because maybe we associate Spain as being a country of big meat and fish eaters. Well, uh, have a listen to Sam and Veron from the AlternativeTravelers.com blog. They've also written uh, a book about the vegan food scene in Spain with tons and tons of recommendations of restaurants and places to go to eat vegan. So do go and check out their website and indeed their Instagram alternative travelers. If, if you were going to go and eat tonight, yeah. where might you choose? We're going to go there tomorrow. Okay. There's, a, there's a place called Landariac, which is a Basque word for vegetable, right? Oh, wow. And so this guy that runs the place, it's, very, it's a very intimate experience. It's like a tiny little hole in the wall, but doesn't look like a hole in the wall. Um, and it, I would say it's like, it's like a bistro, but he serves you personally. He doesn't, he doesn't have wait staff. He has like maybe another chef that works with him. And he's like a, a trained chef. I think he trained in Barcelona or something like that and then eventually became vegan or something. So his food is like, it's next level. Like we normally would not end up on something like this because I feel like this kind of food would be in a much bigger, classier not that he isn't classy, but like places with tablecloths, and Sam hates anything that has tablecloths on it, you know? So, like, yeah. But what he does is he kind of bridges this gap between like what is good about like fancy food, because there is a thing to ha- be said about food that's very like of a certain standard, but like Tate has no pretension in it, and he takes with you the like kind of feeling of like a home cooked meal. But he'll still have things that look like just so well put together and delicately flavored, and he's it's amazing that he's not. He's doing well, but like most, a lot of people can come here and not even see this place. And he just, it's such an experience going there, eating his food and talking with him that it's been one of our favorite places to recommend to people. He also makes cheesecake that I can, I can quote, I've seen people who are not vegan eat this cheesecake and I ask them, like, honestly, tell me. He's, they're like it's amazing, and I would never think that it was vegan if you told me. And that's what this guy strives for. He, uh, this, the chef there, Julian, he's very much showing you that vegan food doesn't have to be boring, flavorless, mushy, and whatever uninspired stuff. It can taste really good, and everybody can like it. Anywhere else in Madrid yes, for you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, because we could just go on about this place <laughs> forever. Um, yeah, the cheesecakes is incredible. But, um, yeah, so that definitely, um, in terms of burgers, the place called Viva Burger is amazing. Yeah, and it's um, it's one of the only, one of two, I think, vegan places that actually have an outdoor terrace. And it's in a wonderful, quiet little plaza. So we love to recommend that one because it's just, I feel like it's such a nice experience to eat outside in a quiet area. Their burgers are amazing. They are absolutely amazing. I took some Spanish friends there, well, I've been a few times. I think last time I went was last year actually and for some reason they had not realized that it was a vegan restaurant and they ate the burgers thinking that the burgers were meat i said you realize that there's these are not meat there's no and you know no you know i can believe it like what are you talking about what do you mean it's not meat it's got so flavorsome it's so it's, it's, i said well what do you think compared to a normal burger personally for me i think their burgers have got way more flavor than your than a normal a normal burger for me and like you said it's on platform Plapa de la Paja, yeah. lovely outdoor seating area. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. Viva Burger, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think their burgers have like something like 18 ingredients or something like crazy. I mean, they're, they're hand formed, so I like to describe these as like a very good vegetable burger. It's not trying to convince you that it's meat. Although, apparently, it did. 
But 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 it has the same flavor and richness and experience of eating a burger. It feels like rich and savory and just like it packs a punch and you like sink your teeth into it. This is not a mushy bean patty out of a can. It feels naughty. Um, and. Um, and I mean, my advice is that they're huge as well. I mean, they are big. If you, you have to go really hungry to that place. And I would say if you're you know, not that hungry, maybe get a burger to share between two. I've done that before because they're, they're really filling. They're really good. So I was going to say, if you ever, one of our favorite things to do is the Menu del Dia in Spain. And if there's a, there's a place that has great tapas, but we almost always go there for the menu, is this place called Vega. It's around the corner from here, um, and I, I guess we're making a suggestion of things that feel kind of like they're great, but they all do their own different thing. And with Vega, they just have, I think the whole thing is that all their food is eco, like organic, is what we call it in the States, homemade, and then there's like another thing. I think a lot of it's very gluten-free friendly. It's very easy to go there and eat gluten-free if that's a thing for you too. But they have just a great sense of flavor and making very, if you stick to the Spanish dishes, the very Spanish-inspired or Spanish dishes, you'll be good. I, I'm, I always warn people against trying too much at a place that's not an international place to try international dishes. Not that it'll ever be bad, it'll just be Spanish sensibilities, and you, you might be a little disappointed. Might not t- like Curry won't be spicy, <laughs> for example. Curry is never spicy here. I struggle with that. Coming from the UK, like, we love our curries. I mean, I think curry is our national dish now. Um, trying to get a curry that really packs a punch and even sort of say can you please you know make it really really spicy like, yeah yeah it comes out like, it's not spicy yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. no I think the most important thing you're coming to Spain you want to try things go for Spanish food whether it's vegan gluten free vegetarian or not any of those if you go for Spanish food they just have a, such an interesting simple sense of uh, flavoring and seasoning food and the way they cook and prepare foods that's where you'll get the best experience uh, yeah on that note another thing to recommend um, because tortilla the patata like tortilla Spanish tortilla is obviously such a traditional thing and there's a, quite a number of places that are making uh, vegan ones now because normally it's made with like potato and egg uh, and onion and um, one place that we love that makes an amazing uh, vegan one is called uh, Distrito, Distrito Vegano and it's in Lava Pies and they make the tortilla on Saturdays because it's so labor intensive so they make like a few different kinds on Saturday and it's so delicious and we've taken people there vegan or not everyone loves it it's just so delicious um, it's a really tiny spot um, but you can also get the tortilla to take away and stuff like that. And so we love that. And they also have like a sister restaurant around the corner called um, La Tia Carlota. And that's like more a little bit upscale, not super upscale, but like more a little more trendy. They call it like a gastro bar. And they have like some great fondue and different things like those. Definitely love that place, too. Um, I just want to add that the places we're recommending, these are places that impress everyone, vegan or not. And even though we have some other favorites and stuff, like there, there might be a place that, like for example, Betrese is a, it's like a classic place that people like to go to, but it's like all the junk comfort food that's Spanish, but made vegan. So it's good, it's really good, but it might, if you don't already have that, I've experienced this when I wasn't vegan, you might not appreciate the food as much. So the, the first things that we recommended, these are places we take all our non-vegan friends who come to visit, vegan friends that come to visit, whatever, and they all love it. They all love all the food at these places. Although I would still recommend B13. B13 is like one of one of the first vegan, it's like a vegan dive bar, Spanish food, like all the traditional Spanish like stuff. It's ridiculously cheap. It's so popular. 
that there's a line out the door before they even open, and when it opens, it's already full because the line has just so you got to get there. It's so popular, it's so cheap though, and it's so good. I st- I would recommend that to people that are interested in junk food because it's not healthy whatsoever. <laughs> it's like you know, it's like a fried, it's like a chicken patty or like a burger, or like patatas bravas or like all those kind of like more bar food things. So like, yeah, I think it, I think it's always important as we've learned recommending food to people over the years that it's really important to realize what people are into because like I'll hear people go there and be like oh it was so greasy and fried I'm like well that's what it is so you know otherwise go to somewhere else you know what I mean so like I said I guess the disclaimer is uh, it depends on what you're into one more recommendation then I'll stop because that was way more than five (laughs) we we actually was it okay yeah well we we did write a whole book on uh, vegan Madrid so obviously we have so much to say Um, one more thing I would have to say that um, the vegan scene in Madrid is so diverse that's why it's like we're struggling to recommend all these different things because there's so many great things here like there's two vegan donut places here one of them is called Delish and one of them is called Bite Me and they're both great so here's a few more of your comments about why you listen to the When in Spain podcast and uh, where you listen and your favourite episodes and these are all listeners who left comments on the When in Spain Instagram account Mozai1 says because I want to study Spanish language in university so I should know all the things about this culture and this country I haven't listened to all of the episodes yet but they are fantastic I don't feel the time passing while listening to them well I'm really glad to hear that uh, Mozzy one I don't know what your real name is is it Mozda I think Christine Samantha says I listen because after being there for a month for school a few years back I miss it I usually listen driving but since being quarantined I listen while I do some online work or just hanging out at home my favorite episodes are when you go out and around Madrid and make it seem like we are walking around and hearing all the sounds of the city nothing specific I can think of just love hearing more about Spain my pleasure Christine Uh, Arlen Gabriel Arlen also a when in Spain patron thank you to you Arlen Um, She says, I listen while working or cleaning because you transport me to places so dear to me. I'd love to hear an episode in Salamanca when it's safe to travel, of course. Thank you. Yes, um, absolutely, Arlen. You know, actually, Salamanca is, you know, a really must-see city in Spain. And I've never been to Salamanca. Apparently has one of the most spectacular Plaza Mayors of all of Spain. Not too far from Madrid, about two, three hours drive, I guess. But I've never been and it's also the home of Madrid's oldest university it's a very studenty city I've heard great things about Salamanca let's hope that at some point in the not too distant future I'll be able to get up there and bring you an episode from Salamanca Randy, retired Randy. Randy, who's also a When in Spain patron. So thank you to you, Randy. Randy says, ever since Robin Leach passed, I've been searching for someone else to give me champagne wishes and caviar dreams. I found that in Paul and his Spanish lifestyles of the rich and famous. This made me laugh, Randy. Um, So Robin Leach was uh, a journalist um, who passed away a few years ago, but he was quite well known in the the 1970s and 80s and he had a TV show um, called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous um, from what I remember and he uh, had this saying champagne wishes and caviar dreams well as I replied to Randy in the thread I said here's to more champagne wishes and caviar dreams or maybe in my case cava 
wishes, kava <laughs> wishes, and calamari dreams, or maybe chorizo dreams, I don't know. But yeah, thanks for your comment, Randy. It did make me uh, chuckle, and uh, thanks for supporting the podcast. Matt RC says he listens in lockdown while out on a walk. Uh, just the right timing too, he says, a new listener. So now going back over earlier podcasts, really enjoying, so thank you. Hoping to move out there in 2020 permanently. Uh, looking to buy. And uh, so yes, um, I'm hoping to put an episode together soon with a property expert. So Matt, keep your ears peeled for that episode. Miss Yvonne Lopez says, I listen because Spain is my favourite place in the world. Your podcast is so awesome. Well, muchas gracias. I went for a five mile walk today and your podcast was my company. Had to reschedule our trip we had in March to October. So I'm hoping things are better and we get to go. Yep. Well, um, me too. I really do hope that any of you have had to change your plans, really make it to Spain as soon as is possible. Uh, La Reina Frito says, I listen on my walks. I love learning about the country and culture. My dad was full-blooded Spanish, brackets Andalusian. So listening and learning really helps that connection my soul feels to the culture. Well, glad that is my job to try and connect you to the Spanish culture. Uh, Katie Peaches, 85. Katie says, I discovered your podcast around two years ago now. I think I wanted to brush up on understanding the Spanish culture as my partner is Spanish and has deep roots from Andalusia, San Luca de Barrameda, to be precise. I found your podcast that perfect missing link for me to truly understand the ins and outs of Spain, to pick up some fantastic phrases, and she puts here in uh, inverted comments, uh, buenas horas mangas verdes, uh, which is uh, a bit like, well, it's a bit late now. Um, you can kind of translate it, well, it's a, bit, it's a bit too late for that now, or maybe, well, in a sarcastic way, well, better late than never. And um, there is a whole episode about these colloquial Spanish phrases. Check back. I take you uh, to my Spanish class with my classmates and we talk about, well, naughty words, uh, colourful uh, expressions as well. So go and check back for that if you like to learn some colloquial Spanish. She says, I love listening when I'm pottering around in the garden, uh, working, commuting or relaxing on a summer's day in the hot tub. You literally transport me to a sunny Spain no matter what our lovely UK weather system brings. Yeah, I just love to hear the everyday life in the background too. The hustle and bustle of the streets, the abuelas nattering and even the sound of the shutters is comforting. Thanks for bringing an informative and positive corner to the tinterweb. Thanks to you, Katie. Thank you for continuing to listen. I'm really glad that it helps transport you to Spain. Jacqueline Newman or Jaslyn Jaslyn Newman, I'm not sure. She says, I listen because I'm in love with Spain, the culture, food, people, traditions, architecture. It all inspires me and excites me. Next week, I was supposed to leave for a two month trip to Spain that I've been looking forward to so much after a very hard year. Listening to your podcast always made me feel excited for the trip and helped me learn more details about the culture. I listen on Apple podcast app while I get ready for work or while cooking. My favourite episodes are about food. I've loved the episodes with the host of Walk and Eat Spain. Well, there you go. Uh, you just heard Margaret from Walk and Eat Spain again. She's on my level with the excitement for food and you guys seem to have fun together. Yep, we do. Um, Margaret, if you're listening to this, can't wait to do more food-related episodes with you in the future. Let's definitely do that. And uh, yes, uh, Jacqueline... Sorry to hear about your cancelled trip. Let's hope that as soon as things get back to normal, you can make it here as soon as possible. 
so there we go thank you so much guys for your comments um just to say yeah but when in spain does have a facebook group with about 3,000 members and we're on instagram and i'm trying to post more videos and new photos every day uh on instagram and facebook to help kind of transport us to spain uh, so do go and check out instagram it's when in spain one is the handle when in spain number one and uh, just search when in spain on facebook you can join the group there a great place for sharing photos asking questions of other spain fans in the group as well so i think that's about it really i hope you've uh, enjoyed the little roundup of food and drinky spain there are a few other food related episodes there's an episode where i talk about menu del dia uh, there's one where i talk about the more modern uh, emerging restaurant scene in madrid do go and check the back catalog of episodes to find those and indeed if you enjoyed the clips that you just heard uh, go back and check out the full episodes with all of the guests that you heard uh, little excerpts of in, in in this episode and well staying with the theme of food and drink in the next episode i've got a fantastic guest and we're going to be talking about that famous spanish tipple vermouth or bermud and i'm really excited to talk about it it's one of my favorite drinks it's super spanish it's uh you know if you're coming to spain at any point in the future you have to have a little glass of vermouth and so we're going to be talking all about it everything you need to know about vermouth the history behind it uh, the different varieties when you should drink it uh, we're going to be bringing you some recommendations of bars in spain to try it uh, we're going to be bringing you recommendations of brands and styles of vermouth and also some recommendations for fantastic vermouth bars or bermuterias right here in the spanish capital so i will leave it there for this week just to say that if you do enjoy this podcast uh, don't forget you can support it by becoming a when in spain patron and to do that all you need to do is head across to patreon.com forward slash when in spain to sign up to become a patron and you can pledge as little as one dollar a month to help support the podcast and the work that i do in bringing it to you so guys i'll leave it there stay safe stay well wherever you are listening around the world and until next time hasta luego Thank you.